Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Moniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com, send me a message on Twitter and let me know why. I have double the followers on Twitter than I do on my email list, and the email list is really what I put out. Uh, That and then this wonderful, wonderful podcast. Bit of an interruption in the normal programming schedule. We're going to get to that later in the show. Um, We're just going to kind of catch up on some of the stuff I've been writing about, and then we're going to get to the title that I have, Lori Lightfoot is being mean. Lori Lightfoot, of course, if you don't know, Lori Lightfoot is the current mayor of Chicago. She's two years into her term, and she did a thing this week that got everybody uh, that got everybody all hot and bothered. But before we before I get into even some of the things that I write about, and I have this, you know, just one of these content recommendations that I do, saying, "Can we laugh a little bit?" Pulled up here. I would like to take a brief personal moment and say, if you are listening to this and you are not where you want to be, if you feel like there is more to be had in your life and you need somebody to give you the encouragement to keep pushing yourself, um, to keep moving forward, to keep uh, trying to take on more and better things in your life, then listen to me say that it's possible and you can do it. Uh, this is uh, just, just kind of a personal thing because I've, uh, like a lot of people, you know, you have finances and a lot of people don't end up exactly where they want to be. And it's, I find myself in this very interesting position in this year, 2021, where I, um, I've made more money than I've made for forever. And not that it's some ungodly sum, but I'm comfortable. And that's a really, uh, that's a really important thing. So if you're somebody slogging right now, just know in two or three years, you too can have a small podcast and you can say that to other people as well. But seriously, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to deprecate myself or to anybody listening. I really, really do mean that it's um, I keep hitting the, I keep hitting these interesting milestones where uh, you know, you think you're not doing well in your job. Um, you think you're not doing well as a writer. And then the generosity, and not even generosity, then people respond to the value that you're putting out there into this life. And I uh, am a firm believer in mindset and being a good person and trying to put positivity into the world. And even though I will cover dark things, it's not for the sake, it's not for like the pornographic sake of darkness. <laughs> as it were. So the first thing I have pulled up here, if you guys haven't checked out Gillian Keeves, this is, uh, this is one of the content recommendations that I put out recently. Um, it, it, their, their stuff is hilarious. So this particular one is called sleep cop uh, and it's about, <laughs> and Shane Gillis takes on the role of a guy who is a police officer. And then he, he has a bunch of friends over and they stay with him. They stay late. He goes to bed and then he comes down sleepwalking. So it's very, it's very fr- frankly, very funny. Um, if you think that sketch comedy isn't funny because you've watched SNL, then I would highly recommend, um, I would highly recommend you check out this, uh, particular, this particular thing. Uh, the other thing that I posted recently, um, 
And this was this is kind of one of the reasons why there was a bit of an interruption in the normal content that I produce at BenAwake.com. Uh, it was Mother's Day, and then I had a uh, family graduation as well. So this was um, so the Capital Research Center has been putting out this cartoon series starring Michael starring Michael Malice and Tom Woods. Many of you people out there would already know who that is, but um, it's really funny. I enjoy it. They're nice, educational. They're based on the Politically Incorrect Guide series. Uh, very, very worth uh, checking out, giving the views. And then, you know, if you have somebody in your life who is maybe on the fence or is open to ideas, which seems less and less likely these days, but even so, it's still a good, I think this is a good uh, a good introduction to the school of the, the, the liberty-minded thinking that's available out there. And we can kind of keep pushing through with that. The other content recommendation that I put out recently was um, an interview with Michaela Peterson and Andy No. Um, I was kind of looking through these, trying to find parts to play. There was nothing really, I mean, th there was nothing particularly interesting, but it's good. But I wanted to, um, the reason why I wanted to post this is that I don't give quarter to communism or the broader socialist schools of thought. I don't find them compelling and I find them to be devoid of any real critique of society. In fact, most of the real socialists of today can't be most of the real socialists today have to basically admit that everything their intellectual predecessors said was wrong. Right. So they have to evolve their thinking to create this new form of socialism, which is kind of what we uh, which is kind of what we, we what we deal with in today's society. And moreover, it's not. Moreover, it's not even a strictly economic argument anymore. It's moved farther into the cultural space, which is one of the reasons why people seem to think libertarianism is some defunct idea now, even though for me, the cultural and the economic are not so separated. And in fact, I think that's a progressive construct. It's a progressive construct and progressivism for the for as far as my thinking goes, progressive progressivism falls within the socialist school of thought. Uh, you know, if you think about a time in which socialist thinking, broadly speaking, comes about at the you know turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, effectively, you have you know you have European socialism, you have international socialism in the form of communism, you have national socialism in the form of fascism, and then you have American progressivism, which is which which takes some aspects of it and then kind of adds its own element because the world was a far more separated place 120 years ago. And if you've been a loyal reader of this pay of the pages have been awake, you know that human ideas are not so easy to categorize as rocks and plants. So it's a, it's always difficult to separate between these schools of thought. I find separating between schools of thought to be a very useful and very necessary thing if you want to have a, the real conversation. Right. Everybody always wants to talk about how they want to have a real conversation. I'm on a lot of dating apps and there's a lot of women who talk about how they want to have actual conversations and real conversations. And I don't quite know what that means, because, gee, if I can talk about esoteric ideas for an hour, one would think that I could have a real conversation. And yet it never seems to get to that point, which leads me to the inevitable conclusion that what most people think of as a deep conversation is more like waiting in a kiddie pool wearing floaties as an adult who's like, you know, five foot 10. <laughs> I don't. So, and, and this, this all kind of, this, this all plays together, right? Because we have a particular manifestation of the socialist idea in the anti-fascists. 
And isn't that interesting? Because I said fascism was a form of socialism. But of course, the anti-fascists are just the international communistic response to the national socialists, like, uh, I don't know, like a Bernie Sanders. And yes, that's meant to be a little bit of a joke. But I don't this is I don't really I, I don't see what's so useful in the ideas. There really isn't anything useful in the ideas and what you really what I think in that individuals are redeemable. It's a case of useful idiots. And I like using that term because it's entirely accurate and it's entirely accurate. And it's, and it's very important to recognize when you're dealing with Marxist schools of thought explicitly or schools of thought that suffer from what I what I refer to as the specter of Marx, which I don't think that I've actually I, I don't think I've actually identified that term before or defined that term in in detail quite yet. But basically, it goes something like this. If you are. Um, if you're somebody who, let's see, how would I say this? If if you're somebody, sorry, I'm trying to do two things at once. <sighs> the specter of Marx. So the specter of Marx is this idea that I've come up with in response to inevitably what you will see and how, how people will address you if you take an anti-communist or an anti-Marxist stance in the university system. And, you know, you can equivocate and say that my personal uh, you can equivocate and say that my personal experiences within the university system are not necessarily indicative of the whole. I would tend to disagree with you. Um, and I would certainly say that I never really experienced outright discrimination or even an outright Marxist professor at the universities that I went to. But the specter of Marx existed throughout. Which is what is that? What do I mean by that? Well, a specter, right? A specter isn't is 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 a ghost. It's not exactly the full fledged ideas. And of course, for anybody being serious in the 21st century, you would have to admit that the ideas of Marx have been completely, uh, almost entirely debunked, right? And and then there are reasons for this. The reasons being that Marx was foremost an economist. Now, if you read Thomas Leonard's illiberal reformers he makes the he give he gave me the brilliant insight of understanding what it means that marx is an economist first and foremost and part of that was uh, part of the milieu of the turn of the century was that the economist was actually closer to humanity than the scientist than the philosopher so on and so forth the economist was considered to be the new philosopher. Economics as a science, which was still very nascent and new in an understanding, in, in human understanding at the time that Marx was writing, economics was considered to be the new thing, was considered to be the best thing for understanding human nature. And of course, today, it's very interesting because there, whatever is old will be new again. And so now we're saying that economics isn't sufficient, even though no, uh, no good economic writer has ever mentioned or stated that economics is sufficient. If we even look to somebody like Adam Smith, this is a very important point. There's two things about Adam Smith that I always like to bring up. One is that he only mentions the invisible hand once in his treatise, Wealth of Nations. The second is that the second is the point that there is the wealth of nations, which is the economic. And then there is also the book Moral Sentiments. Now, I haven't read Moral Sentiments in full, but my understanding is that these are the necessary cultural attitudes that must be held in order for the economic system to work. So anybody who goes out there and says that, oh, well, you know, libertarians just care about economics and there's maybe... There's maybe a criticism to be had because there's a lot of bad libertarians out there making the wrong cases for things. But 
and I don't mean bad in the, I don't mean bad in a moral sense. I just mean not the best at making arguments, but there is, there is never anything that is, it, it is, it's never just one thing. There's always multiple layers and multiple meanings to everything. And so if you want to do the leftist thing, if you want to do the socialist thing, I've said this before, you take a monolithic, you, you turn something into a monolithic caricature. You take a myopic ideology like Marxism and you turn it and you, and then you take it and you, and you attack a monolithic caricature of your own creation, like the capitalist class or the bourgeoisie or, you know, the capitalist donors or so on and so forth. And it gives you a profound sense of certainty, which in turn helps you operate in the world, but that doesn't make it accurate. And that doesn't make it right. So at the turn of the century, economics was considered to be the form of philosophy that was closest to mankind. And so Marx was an economist. And nearly, if you know, one day we'll actually go through all of this together, but and nearly any economic construct that Marx put out was 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 false, right? The labor theory of value, the uh, you know, the polylogism of the separate of classes, right? So like somehow because you know you are a capitalist bourgeoisie owner of the means of production, you are so far separate from your proletariat workers and if it's it's very interesting for me given that i've kind of i've 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 my industry is the <laughs> my industry is the industry that marx was talking about right like production manufacturing and i i can see where i can see how manifested in many ways are some of the things that marx talked about but that doesn't mean that he had the right um that doesn't mean he had the right prescriptions for anything but he did give people in power, a set of ideas by which they could exert social control and social pressure. You understand? So what Marxism gives to the person who wants to control humanity is the means by which to do so, because they can say, workers of the world unite. Let's, Because I think that I should run the world better than somebody else. And so we also, and, and Marx was influenced by people like, hey, what was influenced, was very influenced by Hegelian thought. So he, you, could, you could even put him to be a distillation of Hegel. I don't know if I would stick with that. But we go, we go on 100 years and we have the communist experiment. You know, listen, if you were a socialist, a socialist thinker at the turn of the century is far more redeemable to me than a socialist thinker in 2021. That's that, um, that's just my opinion. Um, I think it's. I think I can defend that opinion. I think that it's worth. I think that it's worth examining. But in in the main, if you consider yourself a socialist thinker, especially in the sense where you believe there's because basically you've had to give up every single position that you've had because it's been it's been rendered incorrect, right? Because Marxism specifically says that you need socialism to turn into communism. You have this necessary telos. In, in the creation of man, you have the you you have this disbelief in the nature of man. So there is no biology as such. There is no evolution as such. There is only the power that you can exert over people in the moment. And if we as long as we exert that power correctly through the government, as long as you exert that power correctly through the government, you can create the man that you want to. And I just think that's a I just think that's a faulty way of viewing humanity. I think that's a faulty way of viewing social science, and I'm happy to defend these claims against anybody. So if most of what Marx said is wrong, 
why is it that we still talk about Marx today? And why is it that he's still a figure of note? Right. I believe that the Communist Manifesto is one of the most assigned books in in uh, in university classes. There are different studies that point out that at least 25 percent of college professors identify as being outright Marxist. And it was told to me once upon a time when I was thinking about grad school, it was told to me that it would be difficult for me to get into certain schools studying the things that I want to study and writing about the things that I want to write about, the things that I do write about now on a regular basis, given that I don't take a Marxist approach. So yes, we don't deal with the explicit Marxism of the early 20th century, but today we do deal with the specter of Marx. We deal with his ghost, because there is a difference, and this is, this is something that I always try to bring about, and I always try to elucidate for people, there is a difference between the philosopher and his followers. There are always differences in interpretation. And if that somehow saves, you know, having the conversation about communism, let's say, for example, or having the conversation about broader socialism, then, then fine, let's do it. But it doesn't take away the, um, it doesn't take away the economic reality of, of, of existence as such. And moreover, it necessarily leads us to understand that we are not, if we're not going to, if we can't win, if we, if I'm going to put myself in the, in the socialist school of thought, if the socialists can't win on economic grounds and they can't, right. You look at any major, you look at any major, you know, uh, authoritarian, maybe formerly communist or formerly socialist regime, and they have to implement some form, some kind of market reform in order for their, their society to continue, in order for them to continue to exert the power that they have over their people. So if the economic argument is completely lost, what are we left with? Well, of course, as I just said, Adam Smith didn't just write an economic treatise. He also wrote a book on moral sentiments, right? Milton Friedman, I've, said, I've used this before, but he talked about how free markets are necessary but not sufficient for a free and equal society. It's not so clear to me why talking about Marxism in a cultural component is, is so problematic, if I could borrow the term. And of course, the reason why it's problematic is twofold. One, you would have to admit that Marx was wrong about every economic thing that he ever said, and people don't like to do that. And two, it, it enables you to put these ideas in a frame that actually works. So some would call this the Frankfurt School as well, right? But there are, these, there are these cultural ramifications that come about as a result of the ideas that people try and live out that are inevitable. And here's, here's, a, very, here's a very clear example of this, and I've talked about this in my writing of individualism. Because Marx, and this is a great Misesian term, but Marx believed in this thing called a polylogism. And a polylogism is the idea that there are fundamentally different structures that um, there are fundamentally different structures of the brain of people in separate classes. Another way of spinning the Marxist narrative is to talk about conflict theory, that there are always at least two classes that are inevitably at each other's throats for control of a larger society. I had a recent interaction on Twitter because I've been putting out quotes um, from the different pieces that I've written. I've been putting out quotes on Twitter 
um, just kind of as a way to generate uh, different kinds of content for people who maybe aren't at the point yet where they want to read every single article that I put out. And one person responded saying that, because I, I talk about the fact that, you know, I, I view society as by definition, a civilizing force. I think with I think if if a society is uncivil or if a society is violent, then it's almost by definition not a society. And if you could still call it a society, then I would wonder why that society is worth it. But that but that's honestly that's an article for another day. So I started this by talking about the problem with Marx and the part and the and and just pointing out the fact that there is always an economic and a cultural component to everything. And most people, and this is, I say this is a leftist thing, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just, maybe it is the fault of sophistry in all kinds, in all things, is taking this idea. And this is what I strive to not do on the show. I do not create a myopic ideology, and I do not take that myopic ideology and affix it to monolithic caricatures. So if I pretend that everything is about whiteness, that's an example of it with the woke. That's what they do. And the woke are just a more recent iteration of, a, of again, this longer drawn out school of thought. I've talked about in other interviews, the point of um, that there are always these debates within a larger society. And I don't know that that <laughs> I don't know that that leads us to a great solution in the future, but it's worth pondering. And of course, if you go back and you read my piece, what the heck did I call it? I wrote a piece recently talking about the what, what I view as some of the, ram, the further ramifications of social science that has been done studying the Scandinavian countries and elsewhere, talking about the fact that when you equalize for um, when, when you equalize between the sexes, differences maximize. And what the socialist can't admit Right. And again, I'm just using these terms in a broad sense, but what the leftist, what the socialist can't admit in many regards, and not every single one, but many of them, what they can't admit is just how rich and prosperous we are, especially if you live in the United States. If my voice is carrying beyond international borders, then I can understand how it looks different. But even, even in, the, in the United States, the level of richness that we have is unthought of in human history. And what I posit, and we will see, you know, this, this is something that is worth empirical study. What I posit is that what we view as these irrevocable differences are really just manifestations of biological and genetic impulses in terms of personality, mind you. I'm, I'm speaking strictly and only of personality at this point. So when you have somebody, let's say, when you have somebody in your life who, you know, you've known for forever and they just disagree with you on everything, well, maybe it's because they literally can't see things exactly the same way as you do. That doesn't mean that we can't teach, you know, this is why skepticism is so important to me is that it, it, it allows you to understand why people would disagree with you and to either leave that be because sometimes you can still enjoy somebody's company, even if they don't agree with you on every point. Or, you know, you can choose who to identify with. You can choose who to associate with. And that's what we should do in a free society. Um, so I, I have been suffering from a little bit of writer's block, as well as just being a little bit busy. 
Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I haven't put out as many posts recently um, is that there was a little bit of writer's block and that, but that writer's block also kind of comes about as, as, as a result of, well, you know, kind of, like I said, being busy, there was mother's day. And then I had a family, a family member graduate from university. And so I've kind of just had a couple of busy weekends and the week and my real job has been busy in a good way. Like I was alluding to in the beginning of this show. Um, so, you know, the, the weekends are usually when I kind of unwind, when I kind of sit and meditate and come up with things to write about. I have, <laughs> I have on my phone, um, a running notebook list of all the ideas that I want to go through and it keeps building up. And so I'm really excited to kind of tackle that this weekend and, and come out with new and better content like I've been doing for, uh, for a while. But I was, um, I was talking to, uh, to a customer of mine about this. And his response was, how can you run out of things to talk about with everything that's going on? And he has a point. Now, what I will continue to iterate is that we suffer from a monsoon of information pelting us every day. The question becomes then not whether we can access information, which was the question for most of human history, mind you. The question for most of human history is how can the common man, how can the average person access information? Right. And you have, you know, you would see something like the Catholic Church is saying, well, the common man doesn't need to access information until the Protestant Reformation occurs. So the question is not about accessing information. The question today is, and in fact, this has always been the question in a sense, is how to interpret it and what action to take in the aftermath of being presented with information. So there are a few major world events that have been unfolding before you as you scroll through Instagram, Twitter, and other social media platforms. In Colombia, as far as I know, we are witnessing massive protests and shooting of civilian in the streets. In Israel, we are witnessing rockets, rockets being fired in all directions. And in America, our president has made the rules simple. Now let's go through each of those. The one I know probably the least about is Colombia, but it doesn't seem like things are stopping there. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to the people. I don't really know what we, what I can do here in the U S except to say, you know, go check out people like Scott Horton who have been covering something like this and gain an understanding about how a lot of this does trace back to U S foreign policy. Israel now has a ceasefire, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Like, why would you, I think I'm going to do a bonus segment. I'm going to do a premium segment where I kind of talk about my view of the Israel-Palestine conflict, as it were. Not that I have some particular unique insight, but it ties into a lot of the ideas that I that I that I discuss on the show, and it's worthy of its it's worthy of its own consideration. And as you might imagine, I have <laughs> I have a view of these sorts of things that doesn't just fall neatly into one camp. And certainly from in my interaction on social media and my scrolling, it is truly fascinating the dichotomy in a story like this. The dichotomy is, is prevalent, is, is evident to me because I seem to have just literally a split down the middle. And the only other thing that you really see something like that with is, I would say the presidential election, but... It's not even the presidential election because you don't see the same fervor that conservatives have for Israel that you do for the presidential election in that the fervor for Israel tends to be more. So, like I said, this is something that um, 
this is something that's worthy of its own episode. So I will likely do that. Maybe have somebody else on the show who would, who would disagree with me. And maybe even if possible, have somebody who represents both sides and just see how, see how something like that mediates, but we'll see. But what, what's the rule? What's the new rule? Because President Biden posted on May 13th that the rule is now simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. See, the, b- between the last time that we spoke on this podcast and now, the world changed. The world opened up. The CDC finally decided to stop with their delusion, to stop with their illusion of... Um, to, st- to stop with their illusion of social control and allow people to not wear masks uh, if they so choose. (laughs) And well, if they so choose, if they get fully vaccinated. Now here's the, here's the beauty of this is how are they going to prove that this is where the vaccine passports will eventually come into play. I think I'm supposed to, by the way, as a, just as a mental note to myself, I think as a content creator, I'm not supposed to use these real words because, you know, big brothers, big brothers watching over our shoulder and these sorts of things. But anyway, so the rule is simple. Now, I actually take this as a very, very good thing because, because it doesn't seem like the powers that be, the powers that be in the government are interested in exerting total control over the situation. They are... And frankly, this probably comes from the fact that they are in positions of power. And so when you have a position of power over millions of people, you know that you have time to implement something. So I am operating with all these ideas that that are kind of circling about right now as it relates to unmasking and people getting back to normal. I had a tweet that didn't get enough play, but it was I, I said normalized normal. Kind of stupid, but I thought it was clever. But but so basically, you have a longer time horizon. You have a lower time preference if you are already in power. Um, You have a lower time preference if you're already in power. And so one thing that is clear to me is that they don't seem incredibly interested in, in, in pushing or shooting just yet. What pushing or shooting? What comes first? Well, what comes first is the nudge. And that's what we're seeing right now. Nudge, shove, shoot. So I think it's shove, not push, whatever. So we're seeing the nudge right now, right? This is the, this is the carrot, and eventually we are going to see the stick. Why? I don't quite know. I think one day we'll find out. But what I've been saying is what they're working on right now is cultural enforcement. They're working on making it so that they don't have to be the ones that shame you or put you in a cage. They want your neighbors to do it. Remember, we, um, I wrote about propaganda a couple of weeks ago, and the, point, and, and the point in that piece, and we'll write more about how propaganda works certainly in the future, but propaganda works, in, in, propaganda works as a signal in both directions. So, for example, there is the famous picture of all the Nazis saluting, and then there's the one guy in the middle with his arms crossed, right? And that one guy, and everybody says, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. You're probably not right. Statistically speaking, if 99 people in a crowd are putting are, are saluting and one person isn't statistically speaking, if you grabbed 100 people, you are probably not one of those people. However, if you study skepticism and you work hard with the skeptical frame of mind, you will be one of those people, which is one of the reasons why I think skepticism is so important and such an important tool to teach to people. So. 
what works, what also works in addition to telling people what to view, what to think, right? Because that's one thing that propaganda does. It also shows the people in power who isn't listening. You understand? So this is, and this is something that those of us who are outside of the government's control have to weigh and consider as we interact. I have, um, I've written, you know, I kind of, I wrote about this in my piece where I talked a little bit about simulation theory, but I, I've mentioned this a lot, but I do travel on a regular basis and a great deal. And there are instances and moments where I don't feel like I am in my own country anymore. Like, I don't feel like I, I share in the spirit of the country the way that I would have in the past. So but that's, so that's just something to point out. And it isn't a new thought that I'm about to share, but it is a recurring one that takes many forms. So in the presence of big stories like this, right? This, and this, so this is what I wrote. This is what I wrote in my piece at beenawake.com. Given that we are single grains of sand, what can we do about the incoming tide? Now, it's important to recognize our own limitations as an individual human. Believers in the cult of American democracy will say this is precisely why we need to organize and elect people to office. That way they can make sure the world is a safe and peaceful place. What the cult of American democracy has working against it, of course, is that the American government shares responsibility for the carnage we see on the streets of Jerusalem and Bogota. The leaders elected and installed over the last century have created the conditions for these outcomes. A year into unscientific lockdowns, there is more instability in a world created by American hegemony. As a single grain of sand on the seemingly endless beach of humanity, you can't stop the force of the tide. What you can do is attempt to understand the forces at play and act accordingly. So I'm not a Palestinian losing their home in the West Bank to an Israeli settler. I'm not an Israeli civilian watching rockets scream over my home. I'm not a Colombian revolting against tax heights tax hikes and an oppressive regime. While events like this around the world put into perspective what we face as free men and women here in America, it doesn't make our battles any less important. One of the reasons why I think I've been hesitant to write is that in the face of these sorts of intractable issues, and gosh, if we're really thinking about it, some of these things are thousands of years old. Is, is you can kind of look and you can kind of um, you can kind of weigh up an issue and realize that there are sometimes no good options left. Let's talk about multi-generational differences in cyberspace. The internet and social media platforms have dramatically shifted the way we interact as humans. There should be nothing profound about this statement, though we are just beginning to witness it in real time. The once popular TV show, Criminal Minds, would normally begin and end an episode with a quote of some kind. One that stuck with me is from Eric Schmidt, and it goes, the internet is the first thing humanity has built that humanity doesn't understand. I'd like to meditate on this idea for just a little bit. Facebook is perhaps the cleanest example of this. If for no other reason, then it became the first dominant social network. I would have joined, I, I believe I joined the, uh, the, the platform of Facebook around the age of 14, and by the time I graduated high school, four years later, most of my extended family, parents, grandparents, cousins, and so on had created a profile. 
It wasn't a post. This isn't a post about the history of Facebook. Rather, I want to discuss the way in which different generations appear to use social media platforms like Facebook. Now let's, so let's a uh, quick diatribe about our brains. I've written and spoken elsewhere about how our brains are designed to fix mistakes, come up with solutions and keep us alive. One way your brain keeps you alive is by obeying someone with, by obeying someone with more authority than you. Now I'm not putting a value judgment on this. It's not positive or negative. This is just, this is just part of what it is to be human. This is part of that biological basis that I was discussing earlier. Now, it could, for example, if you're following a great coach as an athlete, he can lead you to a championship. If you're following a scumbag manager, he can lead you to ruin or maybe even jail time. There is a light and a dark to everything and everyone. There have been studies done that ask some participants to physically perform a task like paying, playing a piano and others participants to think about performing that same task. The results were that when you looked at the brain scans of somebody physically playing or imagining that they were playing a piano, you could not distinguish between the two. This is why I make the point that while there may be an objective reality, it has to be mediated through the individual. One conclusion that we can draw is that what is real might be less firm than what you originally believed. Enter social media. In my post, The Meme That Changed My Life, I discuss how I use technology and the resources available to me to expand my knowledge of things like human behavior, economics, politics, philosophy, and so on. Those of us raised with the internet, smartphones, and social media will often ask the question, why do my grandparents believe the dumbest posts and write the most cringe-inducing things? Obviously, movements like Blue Anon have shown how masses of people can be easily led astray. Let me begin to solve this riddle by asking the question, do you know how to drive? Imagine asking, some, asking someone who has never driven a car safely across the country to do so. While many would take driving as a routine occurrence, before the car was invented, nobody would have been able to explain the process. I spend a lot of time driving, which means I spend a lot of time thinking about driving and observing the way other people drive. The bigger and heavier your vehicle, the more you notice how little changes can save or kill you. When driving at high speeds, your brain is calculating hundreds of complex calculations to make sure that you are staying in your lane, checking the distance of the cars around you, checking your GPS to make sure you're on track, watching for debris, looking out for roadkill or animals crossing the road, passing other drivers, looking at billboards, probably checking your phone, changing lanes, and so on. When you break it down, Driving is a very complicated process, but then again, so is language. Driving is not beyond the reach of more, most humans. It merely requires practice. I'm a far better and safer driver than I was at 16, and more than likely you are too. While I am a fairly good driver and regularly drive in a large van filled with thousands of pounds of expensive merchandise, I have never driven a semi-truck nor anything with a trailer. While I'm sure I could learn with a good teacher, it would not be a good idea for me to overnight become an over-the-road trucker, OTR. I still remember the nerve-wracking experience of driving a big truck for the first time in the snow with a lot of weight. I was nervous, but I was able to complete the task. Both would be considered driving, yet one requires a specialized skill above and beyond the average person who has a license. This is you know, one of the reasons why the state requires different licenses. Next question, can you pilot a boat? If you've ever been fortunate enough to pilot a boat on a lake or an ocean, it's a fairly fun experience. Unlike a road, you don't have to keep to a lane 
And depending on where you are and how rough the waters are, you can go pretty fast and have some fun. There are slightly different physics at play when you're on a boat over water versus driving in a car, but your steering wheel is the same, except brakes don't really exist, right? You have to you know, throttle the engine. You have to put the engine down and make sure you have enough room to coast. With a little practice, any driver could likely learn how to, smile, how to pilot a small pontoon or fishing boat, but just like the big rig, you won't be piloting a cruise liner anytime soon with minimal skill. Can you fly a plane? It's one thing to mess around in a flight simulator. It's quite another to fly a plane with passengers or cargo. Frankly, I don't know the first thing about how to actually fly a plane. But if it was easier than driving, I think we'd all be flying more often. Wouldn't you? Given all the knobs, gears, and buttons inside of a cockpit, it would seem that the task has its own set of challenges. So why do I go through the trouble of talking about driving a car, piloting a boat, and flying a plane? Why would I bother citing a study? about how our brain processes imagined actions the same as real actions. How can I possibly relate this to the way older generations act on social media? And just as a quick, just as a quick note, I've been having some fun with the footnotes. So like older people is not an exclusive character, uh, category. Obviously, there are younger people who don't understand this about social media and don't know how to use it properly. And there are old people who do. So I'm just kind of using older generations as a placeholder. I think the vehicle of information we call social media is the equivalent of asking somebody who has ridden a horse their entire life to drive a car across the country, na then navigate a cruise liner safely into port or safely land a plane on a narrow runway. Let me read that again. The vehicle of information we call social media is like acting, asking somebody who has ridden a horse their entire life to drive a car across the country, navigate a cruise liner safely into port, or safely land a plane on a narrow runway. It's easier for a millennial like myself who has been navigating the internet to process the teeming hordes of raw data and unsolicited opinions one comes across than someone who was raised on two editions of a daily newspaper and a television that stopped after 11 p.m. I don't say this as an insult to older generations. I'm trying to draw out what I see as a major issue, especially given the addictive nature of social media platforms like Facebook. Very smart people have spent uncountable hours to make sure you never want to put down your phone. Even for those of us raised with technology, it's not enough to know that the problem exists. You need the tools to combat it. Everybody loves being on their phone, so the cost of being on yours all the time is pretty low. Unless you make a concerted effort to pull yourself away, your very soul might be sucked into cyberspace. While the older generations might be too far gone, the younger generations are not without fault. This is another reason why I believe better sense-making is so critical to understand our world and why I will continue to teach inquiry before dogma. When there were three TV channels, it may have appeared that things were easier to understand, but really, there were just fewer dissenting voices. Today, anyone can have a voice, for good or evil, and if you don't contend with that thought, you will likely be led to slaughter and take people with you. And with that cheery thought, we're going to end on Lori Lightfoot. So Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced Wednesday that she will be only giving one-on-one -on -one interviews to reporters of color on the two-year anniversary of her tenure as mayor, saying the City Hall press corps is, quote, overwhelmingly white in a city that's much more diverse. Lightfoot said she ran on being intentional about diversity and said newsrooms need to do better on diversity, too. She notified the media of her plan to restrict one-on-one -on -one interviews to reporters of color in a letter to reporters in a series of tweets. So this has generated a good stir of controversy. 
understand. There are a lot of people very upset with, uh, with, with her taking this opinion. And don't you know that this is racist? Oh my gosh, don't you know? Don't you know that this is racist and this is a problem and anti-white racism is such an issue? Yeah, she does. Now, the re- I, now I think the reason for this is that Lori Lightfoot, it does not have a good base in Chicago. Now, she'll probably win re-election, but she's had protesters outside of her house for forever. If you look at radical leftists, they do not like Lori Lightfoot. They consider her to be somebody who was sold out. It doesn't matter her credentials as a gay black woman who's married to a white woman. Um, you know, it doesn't matter because they see her as being indicative of the capitalist class and so therefore a problem. Protesters chant outside Mayor Lori Lightfoot's home. It's not enough to be black. That's the other story I have pulled up here. So there's just two points that I want to raise on this issue and kind of went a little bit longer than I thought. And I honestly have to leave now for a hair appointment. (laughs) But there are two things that I want to put up to this. One is that if you are not part of the dominant narrative, you need to stop thinking that just pointing out that there is a double standard matters or will accomplish anything for you. You are not Tulsi Gabbard. And frankly, even what Tulsi Gabbard is doing, Lori Lightfoot's not going to step down because Tulsi Gabbard called for it. What Tulsi Gabbard is doing there is signaling to people that she is an independent thinker to her credit. I like Tulsi for the most part. I'm in, I, it's interested the moves that I've watched her make after leaving Congress. These people know exactly what they're doing. And cries of anti-white racism, I don't really see how they solve anything. One of the things that I try to do when I talk about individualism is how we need to move past this race-obsessed view of humanity. It's, in fact, this morning, I was added in, and I'm very thankful to be in there with a bunch of other content creators, but I was added into a group chat with a bunch of other content creators kind of in this liberty space, and inevitably it devolved into some conversation about racism. And the reason why it inevitably devolved into some conversation about racism is because nobody, not enough people are listening to my show yet. Because if you were listening to my show and if you were reading my work at beenawake.com, you would understand what racism is and what racism is today, most importantly. But this also goes through history. Racism is the oldest. Racism in America. Racism in America. Let's just be as precise as we can with our speech because that's useful. Racism in America is the oldest and most persistent method of social control. And the appropriate conclusion to take from that is that anybody who is playing the racist fiddle in any form, you understand? So this goes for the white racists and the black racists. This goes for Nancy Pelosi and what's his name, David Duke. Racism is the oldest and most persistent method of social control. And so if you are still engaging in racism or talks about racism and obsesses and obsessive talks about racism, you understand, it's not just that I don't I'm not merely making the point that, you know, there's nothing wrong with racism. No, none of that. If you obsess about racism, then more than likely it is it, it, it is easy for me to assume that you are interested in having some form of social control or. Like I've said before, 
you're actually, you know, it, it might not be that you are interested in some method of social control, but it could be that you are interested in, um, you, you are really interested in, 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 in something that you think is just, but it's a question of why do you think that being so focused on race is a matter of justice. And it's because of the social control that's at play here in America in particular, because it's a lot easier to divide us against each other than to not look at the people at the top. And certainly one thing that we're seeing in the 21st century, which is why the, which is why we have to, again, with the specter of Marx, we have this evolution into equity. We have to make things equal is because the promise of the egalitarians, the egalitarian delusion, as I like to call it, doesn't actually come to fruition. Because it starts, as we spoke about earlier, mind you, it starts with the fundamental misassumption mis about the nature of humanity. So racism is the oldest and most persistent method of social control. And so if you're going to continue to engage in their rhetoric, they will control you. like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.